would you remain standing just for a moment and we'll give attention uh, to our scripture this morning, which comes from the book of James as we continue our journey through this incredible letter. Uh, James chapter one, verses two through four. This is God's word to you this morning. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. God's word to you this morning. You can be seated. Good morning, New City. Great to see all of you here. For those of you who are watching online, we're grateful to be joining you as well and watching from Colony Cafe. Grateful to have you here this morning. Well, uh, James doesn't mess around. After one verse, he gets right into his instruction. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures, I wanna encourage you to open to this passage that you just heard read from James chapter one. And we're gonna be looking specifically today at verses two through four. If you're a fill in the blank person, uh, the outline is always on our app, so you can fill in the blank and we've got some notes there and discussion guide to go further as well. And I mentioned last week, we have all the messages and the scriptures laid out through July um, that you can pick up on your way out and read ahead uh, with us. So as you're turning there to James chapter one, we're gonna look at verses two through four today as we continue in our series. I wanna do a quick little recap for those of you who were here last week or had a chance to listen to the message. Just a reminder for those of you who are just jumping in or you're here for the first time, a great way to spin up on the series. In one verse, James gives his introduction. So an economy of scale here in words. In one verse, he gives us three important understandings for context as we study the rest of his letter uh, to his little flock that he's writing to. And so if you're taking notes, maybe just three things to write for context as we open up in the introduction, just again in one verse, James 1.1 is his introduction. He first identifies himself and he identifies himself as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is very important because we learned last week that James, this James is none other than the brother of Jesus. And so I asked you last week, how many of your siblings have ever addressed you as Lord? Me either. So this is one of the greatest apologetics of our faith, right? Is that people who live with Jesus, who may have heard him snore down the hallway or in the same room growing up, grew up to see Jesus for who he really was and were proclaiming him as Lord. And we asked ourselves the question last week as we looked at the text because uh, Jesus' brothers, he had four brothers and at least two sisters. So he had six siblings, a large Jewish family in the first century, a, a modest family, and none of them believed in Jesus to start with. At least the siblings didn't. They didn't follow Jesus. In fact, they were critics of Jesus. And yet we see James introducing himself here as, I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, my big brother. So what changed? Well, one thing changed, the resurrection. And that changes everything. The resurrection is the pivot point of Christianity. It's the apex of all human history. When someone rises from the dead, you change your mind. 
And James changed his mind. And he spent the rest of his life until he was martyred for his faith in Jerusalem, serving his big brother Jesus and proclaiming the goodness of the gospel, including the book that we're studying now. So the first verse identifies James as the author. And then we learn about the recipients. The second thing, if you're taking notes, just for context to frame up the book. And the recipients, an interesting phrase is used. Do you remember? The 12 tribes. And of course, this harkens us back to the 12 tribes of Israel. James is probably the most Jewish New Testament book, even more so than the book of Matthew that's written to a Jewish audience. James is writing to his little flock, which specifically was gathered in the city of Jerusalem. They were Jews who were raised in Judaism, who had converted to Christianity, and who were working all of that out. And then they were scattered, and we'll get to that in just a second. So the recipients are uh, James's flock, who's scattered around now. And that gets us into the third thing, the theme of the book, which is this group of people that are scattered and stuck. And uh, it sounds like a a Waffle House hash browns, but that's where they were. They were smothered, they were scattered, they were stuck. They were all around, right? Because they were persecuted, great persecution from the religious institute, Judaism, and by the Romans. They were squeezed on both sides. And this begins in Acts chapter 8 with the stoning of Stephen, and it continues persecution in the first century church. And that persecution causes the church to scatter. And we learned last week that we don't get the fulfillment of Acts 1-8, where Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses. The power of the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? These concentric circles get bigger and bigger, the spread of the gospel. And we learned last week that you don't get Acts 1-8, the spreading of the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, unless you have Acts 8-1, the persecution of the church. And it's trouble, which we'll get into today, it's trouble and persecution that causes the gospel to explode, Because a group of people look at the church being persecuted, being arrested, being martyred for their faith, and they marvel at this group of people that seems to have meaning and purpose and value from something more than this life. And this, in one verse, we learn all of this. James, the author, the recipients, people who are scattered and stuck, and they're all over the place trying to endure, and they're asking themselves the question, which is the bottom line for the entire book, if you're taking notes. They're asking and they're looking for direction on this one question, and maybe this is the question that you walk into the room with today, that you're watching with right now, something that you're going through in your life. The question is, how do I get through what I'm going through? How does a real Jesus that I believe in, that I've put my faith and my trust in, how does a real Jesus meet me in my real trouble, in my real problems? And this is what James wants to write about to his flock, a group of people that he loved. He wanted to help them understand how to get through what they're going through. And maybe, just maybe, that applies to you today as well. How am I gonna get through what I'm going through? The people in this room right now have no idea what I'm going through. I'm sitting here right now, I'm, I'm hearing some words right now, and all I can think about is what I'm getting ready to face when I leave here again. How am I gonna get through what I'm going through? James is primarily a how-to book and not a what-is book. And why is this important in context? 
Because James is writing to a group of people who have already decided to follow Jesus. And now he's instructing them about how to get through what they're going through, about how to take a real faith and and a real Jesus and apply it to real problems and trouble in their life. And this is really important as we understand the context of the book. And maybe this is helpful to you as you read the Bible. For some of you, you've studied a book of the Bible before. For some of you, this is your first long-form study of a book of the Bible where you're reading and you're hearing messages. Maybe you're discussing it in a group, which, by the way, is a great way to understand the truth of God, to hear it, to talk about it, to discuss it, to read it, to get it into your heart. And here's the deal. When you read the scriptures, you need to know where you are in the scriptures. And there's actually, as they're laid out, there's an orientation to time and understanding of God. So here's what I mean by this. If you're taking notes, maybe just write down these words as you think about reading the book of James, or maybe you're doing another study right now, and this will help you. The New Testament is 27 books, of which one is James that we're studying. It's broken down into three categories, or maybe a way to think of it if you're a visual person, three coat hangers right? If you're looking at a closet, you got three coat hangers that that, that coats are hanging on. The first category of coat hanger are foundations. What are the foundations of the New Testament? There's four of them. They're right at the beginning of the New Testament. They're known as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are four selected biographies of Jesus, his life and his ministry. John reminds us, if all the stories of Jesus were written down, there's not enough books in the world that, would, that, that, that could contain all these stories. So this is a selected biography of who Jesus is, what his message is, what the essence of the gospel is, that by grace through faith, I can come into a relationship with God, that God sent his son into the world to do for me what I could not and what I would not do for myself. And so the gospels are the foundation, they're the bedrock of the house of Christianity. And they're explaining what is the gospel, who is Jesus, foundations. Okay, so that's the first coat hanger if you're taking notes. Here's the second category of books of the Bible, specifically the New Testament, is historical. Now, how many historical books do we have in the New Testament? One, yes, Liam, thank you. One, and what's the book? Boom. Acts. Acts. Acts is the story, the history of the early church, specifically the first generation of Christians that were living out what? The foundations. So we have the foundations of who Jesus is. What is Christianity? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now Acts is the history of how a group of people, God's people, are living out the foundations. Okay? And then there's one other category, the third category that 22 books are on that coat hanger. The final category is instructional. So you've got foundational books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You've got a historical book, Acts, and you've got instructional books, 22 of them from Romans to Revelation that are primarily amplifying the history and the foundations. So in other words, it's not that the instructional books don't have some history or some foundational materials. It's that their major aim is to instruct a group of people who are living in a time and space just like us on how to live out the foundations of the gospel and the truth. Does that make sense? So when we study the scriptures, one of the questions we need to ask is, what category is the book of the Bible that I'm studying in? Is it primarily foundational material? Which by the way, if you're studying something in the Hebrew Testament, the Old Testament, 39 books, 66 books of the Bible total, the 39 books of the Hebrew Testament, same categories, same coat hangers. 
There's foundational, the Pentateuch, the, the five books, the Torah, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the foundations of who God is and how he's trying to explain himself in covenantal relationship to people. There's historical books from Joshua to Esther. There's 12 of them. And then there's instructional books, 22 of them, right? From Job all the way to Malachi, the prophets and the poets who were amplifying the story. I know I'm saying a lot here. But it just if you're taking notes, I want you to just write three words. Foundational, historical, instructional. And as we're studying the book of James, and as we do these long-form studies of the scripture, which are the primary series that we do here, it's important to understand where they fit in categorically. Because James's aim was not to write another gospel. He, he wasn't trying to tell the story of his big brother in bio, biographical form. That's already been done. He's writing to a group of people who have already believed in Jesus, put their faith in Jesus about how do I live this out? It's instructional. It's amplifying the story. So let me just take a quick time out because I know that's a lot, but that's really important. And let me just come back to this foundational question of, of the relevancy and the instruction that James is giving to his flock and now the broad flock of the Capital C Church, including you and I, as we discover what it means to follow Jesus and how to get through the things that we're going through. You don't need to raise your hand on these questions, okay? But let me just test the relevancy of what James is writing about. How many of you have gone through something difficult in your life? Okay, I'm gonna raise both hands and my foot. How many of you have gone through difficult things in your life? Okay. How many of you um, are going through something difficult in your life right now? Okay, I'm gonna raise both hands and put my foot up to you. All right. Now here's the thing. You say, Chris, I don't like hearing this. It's not why I got up this morning and got dressed, but it's important that you hear it. You've either been through something, you're in something, or here's the deal, guys. You're getting ready to go into something. You're either in a crisis, you're coming out of a crisis, you're getting ready to go into a crisis. And James knows that. And he knows that, yeah, you can have a lot of faith and put your, in the foundations, right, back to the gospels and who Jesus is and what he's done for you. You can be living it out in a time and space, but we need continual instruction about how to take our faith in a real Jesus and apply it to real trouble and crisis that we're going through. And by the way, when you listen to a sermon, right? When you listen to a podcast, when you listen to whatever, you're, you're reading the scriptures, you're discussing it. Uh, the scriptures are for us, of course, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to sharpen us, to correct us, to hold us accountable, all those things. But listen, the scriptures are also through us. So sometimes you listen to a sermon, and, and same for me, right? And you're like, I, I'll give you a, a six. He, he made me laugh. There were a couple of things, but it didn't really, I don't know, it just didn't really hit for me. It just didn't really, I don't really feel like it really applies to me. Well, here, here's the, and I've challenged myself on this. Sometimes God instructs us in advance of what we're getting ready to go through. And so today you go, man, that doesn't really seem to whatever, but, but you, God sees tomorrow. And he's trying to instruct your heart for something you're getting ready to go through. For some of you, he's trying to instruct you about something that you're continuing to live in regret in your past. And even though you would say, oh, I'm over it, I'm over it, God knows you're not. And he's continuing to try to get his truth in your heart to process and understand what happened to you. Now, here's the other thing. 
Sometimes God gives you truth through messages, through reading, through discussion, through your groups, you know, just from his word, that it's not just uh, to, uh, for you, it's through you. What does that mean? It means that tomorrow uh, when you're filling up your coffee, right, at, at your workplace or you're at the bus stop or wherever you are, it might be that God has someone that you're going to intersect with tomorrow, that the truth that he's putting in your heart today is for them. And that's how the community of God works. That we hear the word of God, we understand it. Yes, it's to nourish our hearts, but it's not just for us. We begin to share it with other people. And that's exactly what's happening in the book of James. As they hear the truth of the scriptures, they hear the truth of their pastor giving an understanding of who Jesus is in their troubles and how to get through what they're going through. And one of the primary messages, by the way, and hopefully this is for you or for somebody through you tomorrow or sometime this week or in the future, that God doesn't oftentimes, I know this goes against what some preachers preach, but as we read the word of God and we come back to truth, we see it. That God doesn't often deliver us from trouble. Not saying he doesn't. Sometimes he does. But God oftentimes disciples us through trouble. What does that mean? It means that somehow in this broken world, in this troubled world, you're either in a crisis, coming out of a crisis, going into a crisis, that God wants to meet you in the context of trouble to strip away anything that you might be worshiping or putting your trust, your hope, or your faith in so that you begin to fully put your hope and your trust in him. And by the way, that's what joy is. So if you are taking notes on your phone, you got anything you can write down on, uh, you know, um, a, a Sharpie, a pencil, a marker, lipstick, write this, just write down joy, J-O-Y. And here to me, I know this is really a simple understanding, but to me, I, I'm a simple person. I like simplicity. So joy to me is this. The J in joy is Jesus. The Y is you. And joy is when there's nothing between you and Jesus. And God's busy getting us to a place in our hearts, friends, where there's nothing that we're putting our faith and our hope in other than him. And trouble has a way of stripping away the stuff that comes between you and Jesus. Are you with me? It just does. Because it reminds us that I can't put my hope 100% in that relationship, in my bank account, in my job, in this troubled, changing world where everything is changing but Jesus. I've got to come back to fix my eyes on Christ. That's what joy is. So sometimes God will deliver us from something, but watch this. Most oftentimes God disciples us through something. He walks with us through the context of trouble to fix our eyes more fully on him where there's nothing, zero between us and Jesus. So, you know, Jesus turns, we're gonna celebrate the table. When the table is, is be, uh, begun, you know, that night in the upper room, a lot happens that night. And you wanna know what the context of the upper room is, really, in a word, is trouble, Jesus is facing trouble. He's getting ready to go to the garden. He's getting ready to go to the cross. And ultimately, he's going to conquer trouble. He turns to Peter in Luke 22, verse 31 and 32, and he says, Peter, Peter, and maybe you hear your name right now. Peter, Jen, Chris, 
Vance, Pete, Barry. Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. And I've prayed for you. And when you turn and you repent, listen to this. Go and strengthen your brothers. So somehow, somehow, it's not that Jesus is causing the sifting. He's allowing the trouble to happen. Because many of us, when we go through trouble, it's like, what are you doing, God? Why have you caused this trouble? And when we understand the context of the redemptive story, all the story, beginning all the way in Genesis, because the gospel begins in Genesis, we recognize that we've invited trouble. We've participated in trouble and rebellion against God. That God didn't cause trouble, but he allows trouble to come our way. Testing, not tempting, testing of our faith to come our way, to strengthen us so that not only are we strengthened, but listen to the words of Jesus to Peter on that night. When you've gone through this and you've turned your eyes back to me, when there's nothing between you and me, then you go and share it with other people. Go strengthen your brothers. Your story of trouble and coming through that. This is, this is to me, so rich. And this is what James is writing about and quickly turns his attention to, back to our text here in verses two through four in James one. He turns his attention to teaching his little flock about how to walk through trouble and what God is busy doing in the context of difficulty in this world. And talk about flipping the script, right? Because we look at trouble, at least I do, I should speak for myself. I look at trouble, difficulty as all negative. I just wanna do everything I can in life to mitigate risk and trouble and to stay out of trouble and to keep it away from me as far as possible. And James flips the script on this completely and he goes, you know, um, count it all joy. Like celebrate when difficult things are happening because something's gonna happen in you as something's happening to you. And again, for context, James is writing to a group of people that are scattered, persecution. They've lost, they persecuted, they've lost their businesses. Many of them have lost relationships, friendships. They've lost their ability to connect at the temple in Jerusalem and to worship and all the things that are familiar to them, they're having to start over again. Again, you don't need to raise your hand. How many of you have had to start over? Now, oftentimes we don't choose to start over. It's chosen for us a reset, a restart, a, a, you know, a new beginning, something that happens in our life, it, oftentimes it comes through trouble and pain. In fact, I put it categorically in three Ds. Some of you have heard me say this before. The first D is a diagnosis. A diagnosis has a way of reframing and restarting, of stripping away everything else. It's something for many of you that you've heard before, that you've given before, that you've heard for a family member or a loved one that changes everything, doesn't it? And it can happen like that. And you realize the fragility of life. In, in the last interview that Billy Graham ever gave, it was with Time Magazine. He was just over 99 years old and they went up to Montreat and interviewed him. And they asked him, Mr. Graham, you're almost 100 years old, a century. What's the biggest surprise you've had in life? Do you remember this? What's the biggest surprise you've had in life? I mean, think about a life of 100 years well lived, right? And all that he saw and experienced. And without hesitating, this 99 and a half year old man, when he's asked, what's the biggest surprise in life? Answer without hesitation, the brevity of life. It goes by so fast. And it can change like that. 
a diagnosis changes things. For some of you, it's a divorce, the second D. For some of you, it's a divorce of a marriage or divorce of a relationship or something in your life that happened that ended, somebody that you loved, that you trusted, that turned their back on you, something changed. And it caused you to have to rethink and restart. Some of you are walking through that right now, continuing to walk through the repercussions of that. For some of you, the third one is a death. And it could be a physical death of a loved one. It could be a relational death, an ending of something that you loved, the death of a dream. It could be a diagnosis, a divorce, a death. It has a way of reminding us what all those have in common, by the way. Exactly what James is talking about here, trouble. It reminds us of the brevity of life and how quickly things can change. And that's the context that James is writing to. And as he gets into it, he's writing again, how do you get through what, what you're going through? How do you frame this up when troubles come your way? And again, if you're taking notes, I, want, I just wanna pull out three words from our text about what do we do when troubles come our way? How does a person who believes in a real Jesus Understand how that real faith in Jesus connects with my real, very real problems and troubles. And James gets right into it in verse two. Again, let's just, let's just remind ourselves of the text. He says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way. So the first word I want you to write down there, if you're taking notes, is when. It's when troubles come your way and not if troubles come your way. James doesn't say, in case of emergency, break glass. He says, the emergency is coming. You're in it, you're coming out of it, you're getting ready to go into it. It's not if you have some trouble in this life, it's when. And guys, I think this is so important. If, if, just come back to me for this, okay? If you're thinking about groceries or, or, or uh, what are, you, what are we gonna eat? Just, 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 just come back to me. This is so important when it comes to discipleship and your faith. Because some people preach and teach, and it's out there right now, and call it whatever you, you wanna call it, uh, name it and claim it, prosperityism, whatever. Some people teach a false gospel, and here's the false gospel, is that if you have enough faith, and you give enough, and you work enough, and you're good enough, then you'll avoid trouble. That hard things won't happen. That you'll just be hashtag blessed. <laughs> and I wish I could laugh, but it really makes me angry. And the reason why is because it destroys people's faith. And Paul says, if anyone preaches a gospel other than the sincere gospel, let them be an anathema. And I think this fits in that category. This is so dangerous because it's a workspace understanding of Christianity. That somehow it's a celestial quid pro quo. That if I do these things for you, God, you're on the hook and obligated to make me or make sure I'm blessed. That I won't ever have to experience a diagnosis, a divorce, or a death. And the reality is that's not the understanding that James gives or any of the writers of the scriptures give or live out moreover in their orientation to sincere gospel-oriented faith. Guys, every, God, every one of the disciples were killed 
except for John. And he was just exiled and beaten as a 90-year-old man. How in the world does this match up with real faith, with biblical understanding of faith? It doesn't. The truth is that God doesn't just helicopter you over hard things just because you have faith in him. No, it's better. He walks with you through hard things. And he's making you more like him. And so James says, let's just, let's just cut to the chase right away here. Like we're only a few words in the start of his letter. He says, when it happens, when you're tested, when there's trouble, when there's trials, when there's a diagnosis, when there's a divorce, right? When there's a death, remember this, that God's with you and that God is working. C.S. Lewis said, God will give us some pleasant little ends along the way of this life, but he'll never allow us to confuse this life for our home. So he says, you know, he's British, so he says, a soccer match or a football match, a warm bath, a nice meal, a warm fire with friends. These are pleasant little ends. These are graces along the way, but never forget we're exiles in a broken foreign world. We're not made for this place. And trouble reminds us that there's a resurrection life to come. And what is hope, by the way? Everyone watch this. Hope is the glimpse and the understanding of the resurrection to come. The resurrection life and world that God is making. And we get glimpses of it now, but it's not yet. And trouble reminds us that we continue to live under the curse of sin and brokenness. And one day God will make all things new. But until that day, we'll have trouble. And we trust God in our trouble because it's an opportunity. Here, here's a way to maybe remember it, okay? If you don't remember anything else from the message, hopefully you remember this. Really what James is saying in James 1, 2 through 4 is adversity, the adversity you're going through is God's university. Adversity is God's university. It's the way that he matures you and grows you. And we say, I don't want adversity. And God says, it's my A number one discipleship program. Trouble and adversity is the way that God gets zero between Jesus and you. Where I'm stripped away of all of my idolatry, the things I'm putting my hope and my trust and my faith in, and I just have Jesus. And what we find when that happens is Jesus is enough. You guys have heard me say it over and over and over and over again, right? If, if you don't remember anything else I say throughout the, my entire preaching ministry here, I hope you'll remember this. Jesus plus something equals nothing. And Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the gospel. That when I add to Jesus, I actually take away from Jesus. Jesus doesn't need anything added. That he is sufficient, he's enough. That's what James is saying. Here's the second word, opportunity. Look at the end of verse two and the first part of, or, or, the, or verse three, James one. He says, consider it, troubles, again, this is the ultimate reframe, consider trouble an opportunity for great what? Joy, what? Trouble is an opportunity? Yeah, it's an opportunity to experience something beyond happiness. Happiness is circumstantial. Joy is a condition of the heart. And James says, there's something more. So many of you are asking the question right now in a lot of different ways, is this all there is? Is this, I mean, is this really all there is? 
I'll never forget a, a 60 Minutes interview with Tom Brady. This was like the height of his career. He had four or five Super Bowl rings at this point. He had married supermodel, all the things. And whoever was interviewing, I can't remember her name, I think it was Leslie Stahl who was interviewing him, said like, you've got the ring, you've got this, you're a great looking guy, all the money you could ever want, you're at the top of your whatever. I mean, what, what do you think about all this? And no kidding, he says, this is all there is? Is this it? I'm at the top of my career. I've got everything that, it, I'm, I'm the envy of everybody around. And he goes, there's got to be more, right? There's got to be something more. This is what James is talking about. The something more is nothing between you and Jesus. And you realize the richness, the understanding of who Christ is. And that he's not just more than enough, that, that he's everything. And the only way that happens is for the other stuff to be stripped away. And the only way that oftentimes happens in our lives is for trouble to come our way and for our hands to be opened. So James reframes trouble, and maybe this is an an instruction for you, to reframe the trouble that you're going through in your life as an opportunity to meet Jesus. Because the question, friends, is this. Who are you becoming in your trouble? Who are you becoming Remember, discipleship is the process of becoming like Jesus if he were living your life. If Jesus were in your trouble, in your relationships, in your job, in your family, what would that look like? So the question becomes, you know, who am I becoming in this opportunity of trouble to be stripped away and to be laid bare before Jesus? Um, I pretend to be a golfer. There's been seasons where I've, I've um, been, been much better. Um, but I read this book. Some of you may have read it. If you're a golfer or you have somebody in your family, this is a great one uh, to buy. It's by a guy named Bob Rotella, who is a, a sports psychologist. And he wrote a book called Golf is Not a Game of Perfect. And that is a, tr- that is a very true statement, for sure. For those of you who are golfers, you know it. But one of the things that he talked about was just the mental aspect of the game. And uh, I'll, you know, the thing that, that, that I pulled out of it was when you get into trouble, which you, if you play golf, you're going to get into trouble. And oftentimes when you get in trouble, you think, man, I hit the wrong club. Why do I keep doing this? Why am I in the bunker? Why am I in the rough? Why am I behind the tree? You're scolding yourself. You're all these things. Now you get hit your next shot. And you're doing it with a frame of looking back to all the mistakes I made and you're shaming yourself and all the things. And he said, you know, really, trouble is an opportunity to be great. And really, the reframe is when you're in a difficult spot to say, this is a chance to be great. And, and for me, a lot of chances to be great on the golf course. But that, that, was, a, that was a major, it sounds so silly, I know, but it was a major shift for me of going, man, I can't, I can't change the fact that I'm in the bunker, but I can change and reframe the way I see this. And for many of you, you can't change the fact that you find yourself in the rough or in the bunker right now. But what James is saying is you can change the way you see it. And the opportunity that God's giving for you to experience him in the trouble and to become more like him through it. And here's the final word, right? Verse four, this word appears at the end of verse three and then end to verse four and the word is grow. And that's really what this is all about that you know that when your faith is tested, verse three says, your endurance has a chance to what? To grow. 
So James says, let it grow. Let it grow for when endurance is fully developed, you'll be, here's the word, perfect and complete and lacking nothing. Exercise is probably a good metaphor here. That not many of us like just get up in the morning and think, I just, I cannot wait. Some people do, um, but not many of us get up and go, I just can't wait to get on the treadmill. I just can't wait to, <clears throat> to suffer on this run or whatever you're going through. But at the end of the day, not many people go, you know, if I had this day to do over again, the one thing I would do different, I, I would not get my heart rate up. I would not go for that walk. I, I would not have worked out because I just, you know, it's just bad for me. No, nobody says that. At the time, it, it feels difficult. But you see, what's happening in that is that you're growing in your endurance. And the next morning when you get up and you go run and you go work out, you're that much stronger. And over and over and over again, and the same thing with your faith. And that's what James is after here. Again, this is a book about how to grow your faith, how to get through what you're going through, how to see a real Jesus in your real trouble. And so James is framing all this up. The, the trouble that you're going through, you name it in your mind and your heart right now, is actually a great opportunity for you to experience Jesus in a way that maybe you never have. And here's the idea, I'll close with this, that the pathway to maturity, it turns out, that the pathway to Christian maturity, to discipleship, to becoming more like Jesus is, is not full of you know, roses and, and daisies and, and ice cream. The pathway to maturity is paved with mess. It just is. It turns out that the valley of the shadow of death is actually the pathway to life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what you find out in the valley of the shadow of death is that God is with you and that he walks with you through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't helicopter you over it, but he's with you and he's walking with you through it and walking towards maturity and becoming more of the person that he's called you to be. Because, bottom line, if you don't remember anything else, remember this, adversity is God's university. The trouble that you're experiencing, that you have experienced, that you will experience, is the way that God is stripping away everything that stands between you and him so that there's zero between Jesus and you. And my dear friends, that's what joy is. To Christ be the glory today.